0: So nice to be with all of you tonight. Feel very uh, blessed to have good company and quiet. And as usual, I I think of just the fact that you show up here as a as an act of Donna. And we may think before we come, I need to meditate, I need to sit quietly. We may not. Realize that uh, that it's not only what we receive from sitting together; it's what we offer to others. And and uh, so I always feel that I'm the beneficiary of your generosity that uh, brought you here. Uh, and I say that um, you know with a lot of sincerity tonight. Uh, I was speaking of generosity. The evening at Mission Dharma, our program of, of generosity where people offer um, the equivalent of a, the rental for the, an entire night. Uh, tonight, the evening at Mission Dharma uh, was offered by uh, very dear friends of a fellow named Daryl McDaniel's who recently passed away, and this is to commemorate him. And it, you probably noticed that some of you may have noticed the plaque. And it was uh, it's dedicated uh, uh, to his life. Uh, he de- who dedicated his life to truth, friends, good food, and great music. And his friends uh, very joyously, joyously offered this. Uh, evening at Mission Dharma and and it just reminded me uh, one of how nice it is to have uh, to have loving friends and how important it is to um, to cultivate loving friends to cultivate community and for some people that's really a, a kind of frustrated desire but it's it's something that can be very active and intimate or it can be very uh, a little less personal, but more just feeling that sense of kinship with other people, and and so it, no matter how you interact with mission dharma, with coming to sit here, uh, I hope that in some way that you uh, that you let yourself feel the the support of being with others, whether it is your intimate friends that you sit with here, uh, or whether it's um, just the the sense of um, of just the basic connection of being human and caring about um, how we live and caring about being awake. And the reason I'm talking about all of this, besides wanting to to honor Daryl by mentioning him, because one of our central uh, people at Mission Dharma is was Daryl's uh, partner Valeria. Who is Valeria here tonight? There she is. Hi, Valeria. Anyway, I, I, am I accurate in saying that his friends joyously offered this evening? Well, it was part of the reason that I spoke of this is because uh, we have, all of us, has within us the power to create a connection and to create joy in our lives. To create a feeling of gratitude, to create a feeling of, of kinship. And I know I've told this story before, but, but when I first moved to San Francisco, I found it to be a very uh, cold place, beside the fog and the, <laughs> the wind. But I had moved from a small city, Tucson, Arizona, grew up in, the, in a middle, Midwestern city. Both cities, around a half a million people, but still cities where people functioned in a way that was friendly. <laughs> where when you walk down the street, people looked at each other and they smiled. And I always felt, I didn't realize how much I benefited by that simple connection that was not intimate. I didn't know these people very well. But yet, the moment that smile caught my face, it changed my chemistry. And I didn't appreciate it later that, that we are continually being affected and affecting other people by our thoughts, our words, and our actions. We are, each of us, a field of... We're giving our particular, unique transmission of the state of our minds at all times. How does that feel? (laughs) Well, it's good news, bad news. (laughs) The good news is that we have the capacity to consciously uh, transmit the state of our mind, and usually if we do it consciously, we're more likely to do it in a way that uh, will bring connection and benefit, some kind of field of goodwill. Anyway, I used to walk down the street, and I found it to be really cold, and people didn't smile. And I didn't give up, though. I stayed here for a while, and I found my near and dear ones. I was in graduate school when I moved here, and my cohort that I connected with gave me a sense that there were real people here, who, caring people. But then I, because I was a yogi at the time, I'd just done several, you know, probably spent two or three years of my life up to that point in silence, cumulatively doing long practice periods where I, I felt the intimacy of silence. We didn't talk at all, but I felt very connected to the people I sat with. But because I was a yogi, I, I was also in the habit of practicing loving kindness, practicing metta which is really the natural expression of an open heart and mind. And it, it radiates from us when we're, when we're really open anyway. But it's because we tend to live in a world where people get become very disconnected, disembodied, fearful, and then as a way of protection, shut down. And then because everyone, when they shut down, they feel uncomfortable, tend to then exude ill will, fear, and then it, it ripples, and pretty soon you have a, a culture that's very contracted. Um, and of course, we can't generalize. There are people who are open, people are contracted, and the same people are open and contracted at different times. But anyway, because I was in the habit of practicing metta, and I noticed that I started to shrink and tighten a little bit, because I'd go down the street and I didn't get that same kind of feedback. Feedback. So I started doing what I've announced many times here is what I call stealth meta, where under my breath, I would, to each person I passed on the street, I would say, may you be happy, may you be happy, I love you, I love you, may you be happy, may you be happy? And all of a sudden, and, I, and this is not just Pollyannish kind of magical thing, the whole scene uh, transformed me, and I felt... Again, back in that sense of communion, community. So I saw at the time that it was a matter to some degree of what the inclination of my mind was. As the Buddha put it, whatever one frequently dwells upon becomes the inclination of the mind. And because my mind was inclining toward goodwill, that's what I began to put out. And somehow or other... Whatever that alchemy is, it started to come back at me. And even if it didn't come back at me, just gladdening my own heart through generating that those thoughts of goodwill and good wishes uh, was of some benefit. But recently, my wife uh, tried a little experiment, and I'm sure many of you have tried experiments like this. But she happened to be doing a little fitness swim, and she was feeling kind of grumpy. She was feeling kind of grumpy, and she noticed everybody in the pool looked kind of grumpy too. There are a lot of people whose bodies hurt and there are a lot of little kids who are struggling to learn how to swim and and you know little kids, even though they once they really take to it, they really frolic but at first they their parents put them in these swim classes, and they just don 't really want to be there, and they have to repeat things over and over. So anyway, my wife was noticing all this, but she decided to smile. She smiled at a person who looked really grumpy, and almost instantaneously, the woman's face lit up. It lit up. And my wife turned away, and when she turned back, the woman was still lit up. And then she smiled at the little kids, and they lit up, and it was it was so heart opening for her, so wonderful for her nervous system, for her whole sense of well being, and that and that was and it was it was wonderful for the people who she smiled at, and they returned it, and it became this cybernetic, this circular event of giving and receiving. So, that simple smile was both and is both a gift to uh, the giver and the gift to the receiver. And that receiver then becomes another giver. And as we sometimes call it, we pay it on or pay it forward. It just keeps going. It keeps going. And it starts with a simple smile. So, it's such a reminder no matter how narrow preoccupied focused convinced any of us is of the state of the world or the state of our life or how things are it can change on a dime and if you look at the entire body of the Buddhist teaching it is all about it is all about coming out of the what I call the narrow, gravitational field of my personal obsessive preoccupation coming out of the the tangle of fear, coming out of the tangle of reactivity, that narrow gravitational field of me, my, and mine, all about the personality view, who I am and how I fit in or don't fit in, coming out of that narrow view to a wider, to the wider gravitational field of of truth of the dharma. Dharma Dharma's truth, the way things are. And the way things are, in fact, is that there's not one of us that is truly existing independently in a little vacuum apart from the flow of life. That we are we are just so um, interwoven, the the quality of interbeing is so embedded in everything about us right down to the elements of this body the earth the air the fire the water all the elements that have come together to make us completely non-separate non-personal and we are also just by those little interactions it's so obvious that we're affected and being affecting and being affected in every moment as One of my favorite passages from the the, um, teacher, Nagarjuna, who considered the founder of Mahayana Buddhism, uh, where he said, you are not the same, nor are you different from that which you depend. And we're all dependent on on each other. You are not the same, nor are you different from that which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with the things that you depend on, and then he goes on to say, "This is the deathless teaching for Buddhas who care for the world. This is the de- what it means by deathless is that this process of giving and receiving, this process of affecting and being affected, is has no beginning. It has no end. It is." another deep meaning of the understanding of emptiness of selflessness that there is no independent self existence that we are we are there is nothing in us that we can say exists completely independently yet from a conventional point of view we each have our own history our own karma our own circumstances our own story all of that but it is but if we widen our lens a little bit we're actually a lot more, um, a lot more connected to each other than it seems as though when we're caught in that narrow world of our personal story. And it is our is our personal preoccupation, the grasping at our independ- at, at that sense of in- our independence as absolute. That keeps us bound in a state of tension and frustration and uh, dissatisfaction, and it, and we, it's so easy though to to blame everything else, but it is, it, and it's it's a it's a big confrontation to see how the way we experience things depends To a great degree, on the state of our own mind. So, this is the reason that not only do we often, do I often, and many of my colleagues say, okay, just notice that you're aware, to appreciate this ground of awareness that doesn't have to be created. It has no color and no shape. It's no height or no depth, no inside, no outside. It includes everything. You're in my awareness. I'm in your awareness. Awareness is just the ground. But we often don't just stop with be aware of being aware and being open, even though that is the the ground which all the qualities of goodwill, all the wisdom, all the intuition in us flows from being open. But because each of us is conditioned, we often say, well, what are you aware of right now when you're aware? So we try to pay attention, try to have sati or mindfulness or attention to what it is that we're aware of. But we also include in our, at least more often in the last four or five years for me, ever since a teacher named Utejaniya came along, maybe five or six years, I can't remember. What's become very interesting, maybe more interesting than anything to me, is what's the attitude of mind through which I'm perceiving? And because it's the attitude of mind, it's the perception, attitude of mind colors my perception. And the attitude of mind more often reflects either, if my attitude is relaxed and open, there's, a, there's usually a sense of freedom, there's a, usually a sense of I can find comfort and well-being in the midst of whatever ha- is happening. But if the attitude in my mind is, um, is being driven by insufficiency or dissatisfaction or not enough, my attitude is often one of, of grasping or holding or trying to get something, trying to make something happen, trying to and this is greed in the mind. And that then I, this is this is uh, puts me in a state of, of separateness, puts me in a state of fear, or the attitude in my mind may be irritation, resistance, um, um, fear. And when that's when that lens is in the mind, uh, everything looks everything looks really um, contentious, everything looks problematic, you know. And of course our The attitude, we tend to predominate in one of the three attitudes, the greed greed or grasping mind, the aversive mind, and the deluded mind. When there's delusion in the mind, you really just don't know what's happening or you're just caught up in a a story about yourself. That's the fundamental delusion is, is that taking everything personally that's happening when things are just much less personal than we know. So by noticing the attitude of mind... If, I'm, if, I, if I didn't notice that there's grasping in the mind, my life just feels really not right. I'm missing something. I need something else to happen. I need more. I need to be different. I need, I need more love. I, need, I, I end up being that person that Hafiz talks about in that poem, Admit Something. I think I, I have it right here. <laughs> Admit Something. Everyone you see to them, love me, love me. Of course, you don't say this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one that lives with the full moon in each eye? That is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. But that love me, love me, is that it's grasping in the mind. and It's innocent because we all want to feel okay. But don't realize that that attitude actually prevents us becomes a defilement becomes a block to our sense of well-being that can only be found by becoming the one with the full moon in our eyes by plugging into the to life right here to and open to it present with it L- let that love flow be the one who offers that love so the attitude of mind Really um, colors our experience, and with mindfulness, we simply notice the attitude. It's much more passive, and we begin to see that by just by noticing the attitude, it begins to self liberate. It just usually, if you notice that you're like this, you notice that you're resisting. Usually, once awareness touches that. Awareness is, I remember when Tara was giving the Donna talk, she said heart-mind. When our loving awareness hits a a contentious attitude, something in us knows, relax, ease up. Once we notice that we're holding, love, uh, awareness, wisdom, awareness, love, heart-mind, it knows, don't hold on. Let go. So quite naturally, we begin, to, we begin to unravel, to come out of that tangle of our, of our um, contracted attitudes. And they begin to open. And it happens through that passive observation of the, what we call sati. Just bare attention, non-interfering, non-judgmental, just noticing... What's the state of my mind right now? What's the attitude of mine? So this is the, the instructions. But it's also true that in the teachings, on what we call right effort or wise effort, there are what are called the four efforts. The four efforts are to uh, cultivate the wholesome. And Of course, mindfulness is a wholesome tendency of mind because mindfulness—that—that that open, impartial, accepting, kind of loving awareness—it's it's the it's best friend you could have because it uh, it begins to erase all a lot of the conditioning of of aversion and and grasping because you can't be attentive and curious and interested in what's happening and grasp and condemn at the same moment. You just can't. So it's. So pretty much any kind of negative attitude, any um, any kind of grasping attitude, it's unsustainable if we're actually tuning into it. So quite naturally we start to relax. You see over the course of people's practice, they just become a lot less grasping, a lot less aversive. People just become more tender and kind. You see this really intensively on intensive practice periods. You see it in a short period how people go from contracted to just glowing and innocent and childlike, and it's really beautiful. Just finished. There are many people here tonight who just came off of a, a one-week uh, insight meditation and yoga retreat, and really happy to see all of you who, who popped in tonight because you're actually giving your transmission of, of all that. Uh, I know it may feel like ancient history, but there's still a little bit of an after-effect. But the teachings say, don't uh, just—you can't just rely. uh, The the path of awakening is not just this passive observation; it's also cultivating the wholesome, and and it reminds us. Let me just go through the four wise efforts: cultivate the wholesome and maintain the wholesome, and then the second half of it is abandon the unwholesome. Let go of the things that don't don't serve you so well, and make your attention strong enough, your heart strong enough that you prevent the unwholesome tendencies of mind from even arising in your life. You where you surround yourself with good company, you make sure your mind is quite strong, your body is healthy. You do everything that you can to to prevent uh, being at the effect of uh, of the more unwholesome forces the forces in our mind that cause us a lot of suffering and cause other people a lot of suffering <laughs> wow that was very interesting <laughs> that's okay it's okay it's all good love you just as much as before. (laughs) It's all very personal. (laughs) Anyway, sorry to put you on the spot there. So the four efforts, cultivate the wholesome, maintain the wholesome, abandon the unwholesome, and prevent the arisen unwholesome from arising. And this is a reminder that that we have within our power, especially around uh, cultivating the wholesome—I mean, all parts of the of the of wise effort—but it's a reminder that that it is within. It's a split second, a half breath away. We are a split second, a half breath away from turning our mind toward that which brings joy, that which brings connection, that which puts the full moon in our eye. That which, which uh, lessens our disease and dissatisfaction. And it's as simple as making a, a conscious, a volitional decision to smile. I got a, a note many years ago on a retreat from somebody. It was making a very interesting, uh, subtle Dharma point. But they were this simple and interesting Dharma point, this very subtle understanding of the nature of experience. It was sent with such ill will. You know, we do from time to time. You know, usually the third or fourth day of a residential retreat, you start getting hate mail. (laughs) That's when the hindrances start coming up and and the ill will the ill will gets projected on everything and everyone the the cooks often get the worst of it but the the teachers the teachers as well but this note was just just poisonous just it just reeked of this ill will and so i wrote the person back a note and i said you know the point was really interesting but the The energy behind it. I'm really curious about that. It was so aggressive. And the person sat with it for a few days, and then they said, Well, yeah, I remember. Somebody wrote me, and somebody told me once, You catch more flies with honey. And you maybe, you've probably all heard that expression, but I hadn't heard that expression before. And I really like that expression, and that it's really within our power in a moment to even if you have to I, I i told myself i would stop using this expression but even if you have to fake it until you make it incline it's it's still the intention it's the, the if the intention is pure that you want to incline toward goodwill then then put a smile on your face practice kindness practice it is, it is, as much as offering an evening at Mission Dharma, as, off, as much as offering uh, the support the sangha or support me and that beautiful practice, that giving and receiving that's really carried the teaching, just smiling is as profound, maybe even more profound, act of generosity. Because it, it leaves it, that little gift leaves gladness in, the, in a person's heart. And then they, that person, if their heart is at ease, they start to feel grateful for, I think of the, the, uh, the Thoreau line where he says, I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. My thanksgiving's perpetual. It's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, just a sense of existence. He says, oh, how I laugh at my vague, indefinite riches, for no run on my bank can drain it. For my wealth isn't possession, it's just the enjoyment of being. You give someone the gift of reconnecting with the joy of just being. A simple smile. It doesn't take much. And then if you expand that into all of your actions, that you practice wise speech, you practice wise livelihood, you practice... Just a wise relationship to the environment around you, to the to nature, just all of it. It's you know, our life can be such a gift. It can be itself a practice of generosity, not just something that you do when there's a basket for a Donna basket, but something you do with just your with your thoughts, with your words and with your actions. Because we are all transmitting, just as I said before. And I I just, interestingly enough, I looked at this after the sitting tonight, this quote. I had a feeling that it had something to do with what I wanted to talk about, but I didn't know until I read it over. And someone sent this to me last year and just want to share it with you. And it just reminds us of, of interbeing and interconnection. This is what Eugene V. Debs said to the judge just before being sentenced to prison because of a speech he had made opposing the draft during World War One. Your Honor, years ago, I recognized my kinship with all living beings, and I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest on earth. I said then and I say now that while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. While there is a soul in prison, I am not free. If anybody wants to read more about this, it's from The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, which... uh, yeah, Howard Zinn, famous kind of conscious historian. His uh, grandson, Howard Zinn's grandson, is a spirit rock teacher, uh, Will Kabat Zinn. <clears throat> and his, Will Kabat Zinn's father is John Kabat Zinn, the mindfulness based stress reduction, so all in the family. <clears throat> but the, you really feel that this person has tapped into the the unity of things. And if we can't do it, if we can't do it through simply being aware and awake, just we can't do it alone, just being aware and awake, even though when we do stop looking ahead, stop looking back, stop flapping our arms and our lips so much for a moment, and we just open and we don't think of ourselves as this or that, we don't look and we don't think yeah, we don't think at all for a moment, in that openness, we we can start to feel that there's really, if we don't think, if you don't think, we can't really find a dividing line between us. The only dividing line comes when we think. So if you let that drop for a moment, and this is one of the beauties of meditation practice, you'll feel that connection. Like, I'm feeling it with you right now, maybe. And maybe you're feeling it with me. We're, we're, we're of one taste, as it's often said, a kind of suchness. But that doesn't last very long. But it informs us that uh, we're actually more intimate than we know. So if we can spend more time with this kind of intimacy, kind of silent connection with life around us, Beautiful. And that will translate into perhaps being more careful about our speech and our thoughts and our actions and what kind of attitude of mind is filtering our experience. Because life is tough, as the, as the Buddha said. Definition of, of being born into any kind of sentientness, any kind of being, is that you, you have problems. But what turns those problems into suffering, into a lot of mental suffering, into a sense of isolation and separation, is the reactivity in our minds. It's the attitude of our minds. It's that. It's the way that we deal with the stresses that present themselves. And fortunately, the Buddha said that there's a um, that there's a an end to that. It's possible to be in harmony with life. There's. It's possible to end that that contentiousness in our mind, to end the grasping in our mind that keeps us feeling incorrectly that we're apart from the flow of life. And there's a path. And that path, central to that path, is orienting your attitude and your thoughts toward goodwill, toward generosity, toward renunciation or letting go, and then putting those thoughts into action with, um, with purifying your actions, purifying your mind, purifying your understanding. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. And you can, if if all of it seems too complicated, just smile. (laughs) So let's sit quietly and... I'll end with a passage from David Brower from his book, Let the Mountains Talk, Let the Rivers Run, a call to those who would save the earth. Have a good time saving the world or you're just going to depress yourself. People want to be part of something fun. Put fun in the movement to conserve, preserve, and restore and celebrate Earth, and people will run to sign up. May all people grow in joy. May all people grow in generosity, in gratitude. May all people learn the power of smiling. May all beings be free. So thank you for your practice, your presence. And uh, just a reminder that next week, we will have a guest. The next two weeks, we'll have guest speakers, and then I'll be back every week in in August and I think every week in September as well. But uh, for the next two weeks, next week, we will have, have Bill Weber. Is Bill Weber here by any chance? Oh, great, great. You want to say a little bit about what you're up to next week? Hello, everybody. Um, next week, um, I w- I'm um, taking part in a thing called the Buddhist Bike Pilgrimage. It's the 12th time we've done this. We ride our bikes from Spirit Rock up to a, a, a monastery up in Ukai, a two day bike ride. And I just want to talk a little bit about um, what, a, what a pilgrimage is and sort of my experience, uh, just sort of going on a spiritual journey and the, the mindfulness that comes along with that. And, and get until you win on the on the centers we visit. Great. So everybody, come next week and hear about pilgrimage. It's a beautiful thing and a beautiful event. So he'll be talking about that. And then the following week, you will have. Um, it's a little bit uncertain, but there will be a um, a wonderful dharma teacher here. <laughs> <laughs> and so remember the the gift of your presence, and. Uh, uh, also, to be generous to whoever takes this seat. And anyway, thank you for your practice, and I'll see you in three weeks. Sit, 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 sit. Bye. Thank you for listening.